Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, Women's History Channel. My name is Nicole Bourbonnet and I'm an Associate Professor of International History and Politics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. And I'm joined today by Dr. Zakia Luna, who is a Dean's Distinguished Professorial Scholar in the Department of Sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. And she is author of the book, Reproductive Rights as Human Rights, Women of Color and the Fight for Reproductive Justice, published by New York University Press in 2020. And the book explores the rise of Sister Song, an organization created in 1997, focusing in particular on the organization's framing of reproductive justice within the language of human rights. So Zakia, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Can you start by telling us a bit about your background, how you came to the subject? uh, What was the path that led you to focus on Sister Song in particular? Huh. And uh, thank you for having me here, Nicole. And yes, that question, in some ways, it begins when I um, was raised by a mom who was very politically active and, uh, let's say, <laughs> had us engage with a range of social issues. Um, I remember from a young age, going to anti-apartheid rallies, things like that. And also um, being just really interested in thinking about what it meant as a young child to be raised by a single mother and understanding in some ways that our family formation was different. And many times when it was represented, it was represented really negatively. Yet I knew um, my mom and my family as amazing folks um, who worked multiple jobs, who emphasized education, a whole range of things, right? And so that is an important sort of backdrop. And then, you know, getting involved with different types of social issues when I was in college. And I, I, you know, just been interested in activism, partially, you know, my upbringing. (laughs) I was fortunate to be part of a research project uh, when I was in graduate school 
and I was a research assistant on it uh, called the Global Feminisms Project at Michigan. And I helped organize the last two interviews for, uh, it's actually a public archive of interviews that are freely available <laughs> for use, comparing feminisms in initially four countries across the globe. And one of the interviews that I coordinated was Loretta Ross. And at that time, I certainly was aware of a range of reproductive issues, but I hadn't heard about issues talked about in terms of reproductive justice. And so even just doing the research for that interview was informative. And then um, you know, being in the studio and actually being the one to conduct the interview, <laughs> um, which uh, I think Liz Cole for that suggestion, um, really got me interested in a different way and really thinking about the unique aspects of the way that Sister Song was talking about the work, but also that it was how it was appealing to a range of folks beyond the sort of traditional mainstream reproductive rights and health approaches. So that's a uh, long academic answer, <laughs> a short question, but that's basically how I um, got uh, tuned into Sister Song specifically. That's interesting. And and you really stress in the book, in particular, the importance of looking at the human rights aspect of Sister Song. Uh, so what was it that made that particular aspect of, of their work, of the organization, so important uh, in your eyes? Yeah, well, I think for me, going back to my upbringing, we were attuned to global issues at a very young age. And that wasn't necessarily what was being taught in school, <laughs> but it was what was being taught at home. And also um, I have family that lives in South America. So being aware of sort of the broader context globally was really important. And thinking about different ways to understand the world was always something from a very young age. So in partially in researching for the, this interview that I conducted as part of this project and reading more of the material, in many ways it made so much sense, but it also didn't make sense in relation to what I was reading in grad school about how social movements worked and how social movements got people sort of on their side, their sort of framing. And it seemed really counterintuitive that you had this growing coalition that was bringing together uh, women of color, Black, Native, Chicana, um, large numbers, <laughs> and doing so in this different way and getting the attention of some of the mainstream reproductive rights and health organizations like Planned Parenthood, for example. And so it, I was really intrigued by this sort of puzzle both in the sense of what seemed to be going on within this broader coalition and the larger movement sector, but also how it wasn't fitting with what I was learning about movements. And I was then like, all right, let me explore this in a smaller way. <laughs> and I did a little bit of work in my master's just like, okay, let me explore more around human rights and what sort of examples are there about discussions of human rights in the U.S.? And there were some, some historically, and there were some around, for example, welfare rights activism. But that wasn't the majority of the way that we looked at like women's organizations, the way that they were talking about issues, reproductive or not. 
yet it seemed like it would make so much sense to put all these things in a broader context where you could talk about economic rights and labor rights and all of it. So it's like, why isn't this happening more in the U.S.? And why are they, Sister Song, this broader coalition, why are they trying to move this forward? And it seems like it's working based on what's in the literature, you know, the theories that were out there, it shouldn't be working. So why is it working? <laughs> so, yeah. All right, this paradox. Uh, and you talk about how, you know, partially the human rights framework maybe isn't used so often because it's seen as something that's over there, right? That the U.S. kind of promotes human rights abroad, but issues, you know, resists actually it, having that language and signing on to human rights treaties. Uh, and so you had this concept of, on the one hand, restrictive domestication of human rights, and then arguing that Sister Song has a more revolutionary domestication. So can you maybe explain a bit the difference between these forms of domestication of human rights? Yeah, yeah. And part of what I was trying to get at with domestication is the multiple uses, right, and multiple definitions of the term, right? So there's domestic in the sense of here, locally, right, um, U.S. And, but then also when we think about domestication, when people talk about, you know, domesticated cats, right? right? What they mean is um, tamed, right, calmed down, um, not as strong as, I don't know, the tiger that's in the zoo, right? right? That's what we're kind of referring to. And so part of what I'm arguing um, isn't that, you know, the U.S. government is engaged, you know, they're not sort of wholesale rejecting human rights, right? What they're doing is like taking the parts that are convenient to them and really (laughs) watering it down in many ways, right? And I was able to build on the work of some folks in political science and some in the sort of broader interdisciplinary human rights field, but really think of it not as really an accidental process, but a active process, irrespective of which political party is in office. (laughs) And that's because it serves U.S. interests, right? Um, It serves U.S. interests to talk about democracy, right, and open elections. It doesn't necessarily serve the interest to talk about labor rights, right, to talk about having base level right to health, um, it can be quite controversial, as we saw, right, with um, Obamacare, etc., right? And so you have that happening, and that's sort of the backdrop, right, the sort of restrictive domestication, so taking particular elements and strains of this broader human rights framework, that's the sort of U.S. government has a long history of doing that. And then you have a coalition like Sister Song that's really trying to bring in the expansive human rights framework, right? What you would see for all the things in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, including, you know, additions to developmental rights, sexual rights, things that many people, if you ask them, don't even realize like, oh, there's some documents that say that we have a right, you know, (laughs) to choose our sexual partners, for example, right? Like that's something that even people in the U.S. who I would say think of themselves as understanding human rights, right? there's actually quite a bit we don't know because we're not taught it. So Sister Song's sort of revolutionary part is, in my thinking, and, you know, they hint at this and you can see it in the data, 
that to really get at the level of human rights they're talking about would require major systemic change. And what do we call major systemic change? We call it revolution, right? Right. Um, rather than reform. So that is sort of as putting those in approaches sort of in conversation with each other and understanding sort of how we get to this place of this coalition saying, hey, human rights make sense for our communities and our context because we need all these other things to be able to actually exercise our legal rights. We need economic rights. We need healthcare. We need a set of things. It's not only that we need voting rights. Sure, they're important, <laughs> but you also need healthcare, right? You need a range of things. Uh, so that's how I was developing those concepts. Right. They're taking this kind of more holistic, the holistic approach to, to human rights. Uh, and you talked about how this is partly influenced by Sister Song's engagement with international conferences. So the UN Women Conferences in Nairobi in 1985 and Beijing in 1995 uh, and the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo. And can you tell us a bit about how these international engagements shaped these perspectives, how they influenced maybe some of the individuals in the movement and the organization more broadly? Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of sort of early <laughs> chapters in thinking about a broader moment that was happening globally um, regarding the United Nations and different individuals and organizations in the U.S. that were trying to engage internationally with these conferences on women, for example. And the reason that that's important is because in those spaces, right, they were able to see what was going on with other movements. And I always try to, you know, when I'm talking with students about this sort of time, I remind them that this is before social media, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. When people are talking about going to conferences, you know, I've come across in, you know, archives, like conference registration forms that were fully paper, right? And you mailed back your check (laughs) to register for something. I mean, it was just such a slower process in many ways, right? And required you navigating all sorts of systems. And in comparison to now, and I think that is really important because think about what it took to get to conferences, funding, all of that, and then to be in a space with hundreds and thousands, right, of women from throughout the world who are working on a range of issues, some of whom are working on reproductive issues, but some of whom are working on labor, some of whom are working on environment. And in some scenarios, you know, really making quite a bit of progress in part, um, and founders talk about this, in part because in their countries, depending upon the countries, right, for example, the government had already signed on to um, the Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, for example, right? And so their movements are able to, you know, they saw examples of movements that were able to really push things that would be unheard of in the U.S. regarding, say, access to abortion or things like that. But they were engaging through a different framework, right? And also something else I talk about is the importance, and I think this still happens for folks in the U.S., the importance of being a group of uh, women of color, right, in the U.S. context, where due to race and gender and usually class status, for example, 
um, and the hierarchies, you're lower in the hierarchy, right? You're experiencing intersections of oppressions around all of this, right? Then you leave the U.S. and people are seeing you as representatives of the U.S., right? And sort of having to also deal with those tensions of what it means to have sort of privileges of citizenship, for example, even if in the U.S. context, it doesn't necessarily feel like there's a lot of privilege when you go, you know, span out globally, right? You, they talk about some examples where people are sort of pushing against them and saying, well, hold on, like, yeah, we have some similarities across globally, but also we have some differences because you're coming from the U.S., which is, you know, an imperial power. <laughs> some of us are coming from colonies of your nation, you know. So okay. that also really adding complexity to it that was really important, um, I think, for many of the early founders who were able to engage in those experiences. Right. It gives us the, this broader perspective of, of women's rights. Um, mm-hmm. But then on the, at the same time, as, as you discuss in the book, the fact that human rights is seen as this kind of international discourse, this international language can make it hard to integrate into community level work, right? Because it's seen as almost foreign or, or not relevant. Uh, it's not the language used locally. So can you mm-hmm. explain a bit kind of how that, the, some of the tensions that that created, some of the difficulties of actually integrating this language mm-hmm. into the organization's work? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I talk a bit about, well, some of the early tensions, right, in that not everyone who was involved with the early founding necessarily, at least in their interviews they articulated, they weren't necessarily fully on board with focusing on human rights. And there were different reasons for that. And some of it was they were like, well, we're still learning it ourselves. Like, does that really make sense? Whereas for others, it was like, that doesn't really resonate, you know, like we're using civil rights, like it doesn't make sense, right? So there were different reasons. And I remember um, an interviewee who, who said, yeah, and honestly, when you looked at a lot of the human rights, you know, documents and stuff and the work that was happening in other countries, it seemed really academic. And I thought mm-hmm. that was really interesting, right, as a way <laughs> to trying to describe in this interview, basically, it seemed really inaccessible <laughs> to say, you know, it was really academic. And yet, obviously, there was resonances in that you could go to these conferences and there was hundreds of thousands of women, you know, doing work in this area, coming from all over, trying to get to whichever country it was held in, right? And it was not cheap for people to to get to these events internationally. And yet, they were really trying to engage um, with other um, organizations, individuals, and government representatives, because that's who also attends <laughs> these conferences. So part of the tension, so in the book I talk about, like, yes, this tension existed, but formally human rights won out in this sort of coalition in that you could see in the mission statements, you could see in early press releases for different things, right? And you could also see like one of the founding organizations of the coalition was engaged in human rights education work, right? And so I talk about that relationship there. But there's also evidence, you know, of continual education for early founders, both for themselves to get a better grasp on really just how expansive this was and engage with folks in, um, 
for example, trainers, you know, coming in to help them so then they could then translate this to trainings in other communities. And what I think is important, I mean, there's many things that are important, but one is also a willingness to say, okay, we don't understand everything 100%. It's not going to be perfect, but we're going to try this anyway. And I think that's something, um, what is that phrase? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the reason that's really important in thinking about the contemporary moment is that there's so much, um, so many eyes on movements right now with social media and stuff that there's this, sometimes it seems like this expectation that people will know how to do everything perfectly. But you're like, how? Unless you try different models and experiment and see what works and see what doesn't work, how else will you know? And I think that's something, you know, that I didn't necessarily write about in these terms in the book, but like that spirit of experimentation, it's not just innovation, but like that is risky, but also there's the potential for reward. And that is really exciting and I think um, speaks to part of the success, right? Yeah. And actually, I mean, you can see that flexibility too, right? I'm I'm thinking of this one. I remember there's like a workshop program where it's all these kind of high level discussions of different elements of human rights. And then they end up fitting in this movie about militarization in Puerto Rico, kind of in the, in the middle of it. Right. And Mm -hmm. in response to, to one of the, Mm -hmm. the members. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see that kind of integration of, yeah. Or adaptation. Yeah, yeah. The adaptation and also, you know, in regards to that training, like the importance of uh, the importance of and the challenge of bringing together different communities. And part of what I also, you know, it's in the book and then I also have it in some articles, but there's also sometimes assumptions that, okay, women of color as this broad category will automatically all get along no matter what, mm-hmm. right? And that's not necessarily true, right? There's complexity and there's also intersections, right, within different class dynamics, power dynamics. And so, for example, um, the one around militarization was also around thinking um, about, um, if I remember correctly, militarization in Puerto Rico, right? Like there's different issues that different communities are dealing with, right? Or, um I talk about in the book when you look at the different mission statements or even at in-person events um, at multiple times, Native American was pulled out, right? And it would say, you know, this is a coalition for Native American and women of color. And that was intentional, right? And there's documents you can find where they talk about the importance of that for the Native folks and their organizations because it acknowledged a different relationship to the land Right. So even though, yes, like racially and ethnically, we were all being discriminated against, there is also a continued colonization <laughs> that one group is experiencing. Right. That does benefit. Right. Um, uh, folks who aren't native. Right. No matter what your racial background or class background. And so really trying to create space. Right. But that also takes time, <laughs> which isn't necessarily something that in movement spaces, people feel like that they have a lot of time, right? It, it actually takes work to be willing to slow down. <laughs> All right. 
Right. And funding and, you know, all of that. Well, yes. I, I was like, let me see. He might ask that question, actually. Yeah. And funding, <laughs> you know, talk about funding. And funding is something that came up that I, like when I did interviews, I didn't have a question about funding. It came up naturally. People raised it um, because it is something that comes up when you're relying on foundation funding because there's usually deliverables, right? And those deliverables happen on a certain timeline that doesn't necessarily reflect the timeline of, say, adult education processes and best practices or things like that that are part of the reality that folks are dealing with in movement spaces when they're trying to not just get a particular action done, but they're trying to shift culture, right? That takes time. It takes a long time to build culture. It takes a long time to shift it, right? Um, years and some would say decades, really. So yeah, you have that tension as well. It's hard to write that up in a grant proposal or a, or a project report. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, that's part of some of the documents that I had were, yeah, grant proposals, reports, and it's it also that, you know, these proposals aren't happening in a vacuum. There are other organizations that I won't say they weren't doing this exact thing, but there's also ways that, you know, there are more established sort of organizations within reproductive health and rights sectors, right? And who are able to show that they have a long track record of getting people to events or doing certain things, or maybe even, you know, helping elect certain types of candidates, right? And when you're newer and you're talking about things in a different way, you're trying to work with, not work for, but work with particular communities, right? Everything, you're starting almost from scratch, right? So you're trying to, in some ways, be careful here, they weren't trying to play catch up. In fact, they're very explicit. That sister song was not founded, um, Loretta Ross would say this repeatedly, and it's in some of the texts that I pull out, um, you know, Sister Song wasn't founded to change the mainstream, right? It was founded to help create a space for women of color who were doing work in and out of organizations who wanted a different way to think about reproductive issues that really was more holistic and brought together, yes, rights to not have children, but rights to have children and rights to parent with dignity and wanted to think about what world do you need to create to, to make that a reality, right? And so, yeah. right. And and here it's also drawing on experiences they've had working within more mainstream uh, women's organizations, right? Uh, can you talk a bit about some of the some of the experiences that women had in those organizations and how they saw the approach of reproductive justice as different from the more mainstream United States reproductive rights movement? Yeah, I can, and and I think what's interesting, even that word mainstream, like when I was doing interviews, I. I you know, people would say, well, mainstream, and, I, and I'd say, I think I know what you mean, but can you tell me what you mean, <laughs> just just in case I'm wrong? And the reason, I, you know, I think um, it's important to, to understand how other people are understanding concepts, and across the board, they generally meant like, oh, organizations that are serving white, middle-class women, even as people acknowledge, like, multiple of them had worked in those spaces, <laughs> and... Mm. But part of it, uh, so for example, 
Loretta Ross, who was one of the sort of, who was a national coordinator of Sister Song for a really long time, she had actually in the 80s worked for National Organization for Women. And in the interview that I had conducted with her for the Global Feminisms Project, she talks about how Ellie, as in Eleanor Smeal, who was <laughs> head of NOW at the time, you know, thought that Loretta Ross's job was to recruit you know, women of color, particularly black women, to the organization. And Loretta Ross has a really funny quote in which she says, and I thought my job was to figure out why they hated the organization so much, right? <laughs> and that, you know, really different sense of what is the goal and what is needed in the long term, I think was really important. But as she worked for, you know, now, she put together what, is seems to be documented as the first sort of national conference for women of color around reproductive rights issues. And you know, the, the conference for you was, I want to say, it was like $20. <laughs> you know? And, um, but the issues that were being talked about were things like um, genetic, uh, you know, technologies. What are the implications of these? Uh, thinking about abortion issues, right, and controversies there, but also movement politics uh, like racism and the pro-choice movement, right? So it was both about content and sort of the larger structures of the movement. And there were a few hundred folks who attended that conference, and they had some surprise guests like Shirley Chisholm, you know, stop by. But something I found really interesting is where in the notes, there's discussion of pro-life uh, African-American group protesting the conference right, outside and some of the conference organizers going and saying, hey, like, you know, let's talk. And do you want to come to the conference and, you know, talk with us about what we're actually doing? Right. And that to me is an example of recognition, like, the quote-unquote opposition is part of our communities, right? And also that we can't just say, well, we're not going to engage with anybody who doesn't believe in a right to abortion access. Like, because that would mean for some of us, we're not going to talk with our family members. And that's not really viable for us, right? And really thinking more broadly about who could be part of these communities and issues. And so it wasn't just about topics, but it was about the approach, right? That sort of inclusivity and also really just a, a big part of reproductive justice is moving out of the choice framework where it's like well, pro-choice means you are for abortion access and anti-choice or pro-life, depending upon what language you're using, <laughs> um, means you're against abortion access. And, and then we're sort of like, well, let's step back. One, it's not that simple. People are along a spectrum and they might have different ideas of what they would want for themselves versus their communities. And two, who gets to make choices, right? What, what resources do you need to make choices? And, you know, particularly in the U.S., being a long history of control of reproduction of, say, enslaved Black women, um, Native folks um, who'd had, you know, children stolen and put into boarding homes, right? Um, Chicano folks in California, where there was, you know, all these cases that come up of, you know, LA County Hospital, for example, engaging in forced sterilizations, right? They're like, what about those choices, right, to have children and to form our families? And reproductive justice was a way to really think about, you know, reproductive issues in this broader social justice context. 
and thinking about rights to, yes, not have children, but rights to have children and rights to parent with dignity sort of safely. And that, that's, that covers the spectrum for many folks of a lifetime, rather than only focusing on abortion and contraception, which certainly are part of people's lives, but aren't the entirety for most people of their life, right? There's a range of desires, of actions, of issues that people are considering at different points in their lives. And reproductive justice is really trying to get at that full spectrum of people's lives. Right. And you talk a bit in the book about how the language of reproductive justice now has started to be kind of incorporated beyond its, you know, more sort of original settings um, and how there's maybe some skepticism as to whether, you know, this is just the language being used or whether that broader holistic framework that you just described is actually being fully embraced. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have a whole separate article on that um that, that was a, it's called phrase of the day because one of my interviewees uh talked about how it seems like sometimes reproductive justice is just a phrase of the day and i'll say one really brilliant thing regarding the reproductive justice movement is there has been you know some documenting of from within the movement right of the frameworks are trying to move forward. So for example, 2005, the organization at the time named Asian Communities and Reproductive Justice came out with this multi-page colorful document that was a framework that was saying, okay, what's the difference between reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice, right? And saying, okay, what types of issues are being addressed? What types of approaches are being addressed? Who's seen as the expert, right? So when people think often about reproductive rights, they think about courts, they think about Roe v. Wade, especially you know, right now. <laughs> um, and that often, you know, the sort of experts there, often, you know, people with legal expertise, you know, people who can argue things in the courts. And it's often about, oh, okay, well, protecting a right um, on the books to ensure that people have a legal right to something, right? And with reproductive justice, it's like, yes, that's important, but what are the resources for that? Or what are even the basics for the reproductive health care access possibilities for folks, right? And bringing that all together. And so at the time I was doing my initial data collection, there was a lot of discussion about really trying to ensure, well, for various people, the sort of boundaries <laughs> of reproductive health versus reproductive rights versus reproductive justice, right? Because there was a lot of concern that like, well, this, this phrasing is getting more popular and we're seeing it in spaces where they're not necessarily working with communities of color. They're not engaging in the reproductive justice principles of centering the people most affected, right? Um, and so there's concern about that. I, I think there's still some concern years later but with the internet, right, there's limits to what you can control. You know, as one of my interviewees mm-hmm. said, you know, you can't copyright a movement. And, but I think one example of success, though, is that if you, you know, type in in your preferred search engine reproductive justice definition, within the first three or so, maybe five um, entries, Sister Song usually appears. And 
that's, I think, a sign that there is, like, yes, there's this proliferation of the use of the phrase reproductive justice, but that there is increasingly, or that it is still staying connected to Sister Song in more spaces than not. Probably not as many spaces as would be desired, but um, th- that that is something that the internet is allowing for, that sort of backtracking and connecting to their website and to their stories. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, being here in Geneva, the language is really sexual and reproductive health and rights, SRHR. Um, but I feel like in the, in the international community, when you talk about reproductive rights, it's not the same as the U.S. reproductive rights. It, it almost seems closer to me to a more justice framework because it is about, you know, always talking about the social economic context, yes. the, you know, beyond SRHR is, is usually covers also sterilization yes. abuse, maternal, you know, um, abusive women in hospitals giving mm-hmm. birth. So mm-hmm. It's, yeah. SRHR, I mean, I mean, that's coming from, like, in human rights, like, if you look at, like, United Nations documents and things like that, SRHR, like, that's there, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I remember in, so yes, but in the U.S. context, if you say sexual health and reproductive health, because of how things have already been so framed from decades, decades, decades of debates and controversies around abortion in particular and contraception to some degree. If you say that for most people, that's still where they go. They still go to this much narrower space rather than what is actually happening in sort of international arena. And that um, there's actually some early documents from the early engagements in the United Nations activities where you do see in some of the sister song stuff, sexual SRHR, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh. um, where you see it, but part of the work of having to think about the context you're working in is like, okay, everything is so much in the US context. If you say this phrase, people can only really think of it for the most part in the terms that are already there which is much more narrow, as you're talking about. Whereas at least human rights, you're allowed, you, you can connect it to this international thing, right? So people don't already have, they have some ideas of it, but there's a little bit perhaps more entry point there, right? But yeah, I, I mean, the language is different and there's right, but it's interesting how it then maybe, as, as you say in the book, or as some of the interviewees say, how social justice is this term that's more recognizable. And so bridging that kind of helps to make it related more to other struggles, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do, yeah, I do talk about that in the book. I also talk about the potential for, you know, what is lost with that, you know, because if you are only using the familiar terms like social justice, right? Well, people are kind of filling in their understanding of it and you're not necessarily getting that sort of innovation and that connection to these other contexts. And of course, like, sure, the U.S. is important, right? I mean, everyone thinks, you know, the country they're in is important, right? But like, (laughs) we're globally connected, right? Globally connected. And what happens in one space does impact in other and I think there's also this recognition and in some of the 
pieces in the Sister Song newsletter, they talk about this. You know, the U.S. has an outsized sort of impact on what happens to other countries, both economically, but also, um, for example, with funding around reproductive health care, right? So with the Helms Amendment, you know, each year, or not each year, but each time there's a new uh, presidential administration in office, you know, if there's one that opposes abortion, they say, okay, like, they have the Helms Amendment, like, global gag rule, da-da-da, and, you know, and how many every years that administration is in office, any entity outside the U.S. that's receiving U.S. aid, you know, cannot <laughs> be talking about abortion, contraception, right? Like, that's a really big impact to have, right? And then it switches, you know, this sort of back and forth that impacts folks globally, right? So there's also this thinking, um, they talk about some of what's the sort of responsibility globally to women of color, globally to women, and that part of the consequence, you know, a positive consequence of shifting the sort of culture in the U.S. to a culture of broader human rights is that what it would positively impact <laughs> what's happening in other nations because of this outsized role that the U.S. has in determining financial resources in other countries um, around reproductive health care and more broadly. So Right, which also kind of comes to that, the limitations of choice, right? Because again, it's that economic, that underlying economic framework that influences yeah um, yeah yeah at home and abroad right it, the- yeah yeah I mean economics is a huge part of it but there's also I mean just thinking about and this is something you know right now we're we're still in a pandemic <laughs> a global mm-hmm. pandemic and it becomes very clear to folks in a moment like this or if you think about I think of the what they called at the time the great recession right 2008 that if you have employer-based healthcare and you still have a job, that's great. You're generally, you're, you're, you have access to more healthcare resources, you're fine, right? But what happens when you're not employed anymore? And what's been happening, you know, during the pandemic, obviously, is companies shutting down, spaces shutting down, cutting back on benefits, all these things. And what does that mean if that's the system that we have for the vast majority of your healthcare, right? It's so precarious for many folks in the U.S. context. And I know that any listeners who are, well, where you are, you know, in Europe, you know, are going to be like, ah, oh, that's right, the U.S. with your healthcare thing again. You know, it's just so, I, I, <laughs> I've talked with some folks when I was traveling a couple of years and someone was just like, I just don't get your healthcare, <laughs> you know, on the plane. I'm like, I know, I, I mean, it's just famously... It's it's what people understand as the way things happen here, except we do have other models of broader health care that is not only based on an employer, right, in the U.S. Um, and actually we saw it with the COVID shocks, right? It was like, all right, no matter what, <laughs> like you get access to a COVID yeah. shock, right? Or um, there's other examples of and that. Suddenly right? the impossible was possible. Well, right. Well, that's actually, I mean, it's, yes. And that's also part of... I was saying earlier, part of the thing around reproductive justice is thinking about what is the that you're trying to build, not only what you are trying to fight against. Because, and this is, you know, there's been broader discussions happening in different movement spaces, and I think that's part of the, you know, like um, A.J. Marie Brown's work and others really talking about 
well, in social movement scholar terms, you know, prefigurative politics, right? And the idea that like, okay, you can't spend, if you only spend all your time fighting against something, what happens when you win? Like, what are you putting in its place, right? If you haven't been practicing other models or developing other ideas, other ways of relating, well, you're just going to reproduce what was already there <laughs> because that's what you grew up with, right? That's what you learned. And so the other part around reproductive justice is it's not just, you know, topically, it's about thinking about different relationships. Who are our responsibilities to? Who is part of our community, right? Who do we have responsibility to take care of uh, in the short term and the long term? And that's also then something you can think about, you know, why a broader human rights framework, <laughs> you know, makes sense to really think about because it's about the ideal conditions that you would want governments to provide for their people, right? And again, it's a very lofty, you know, post-World War II, seems like, you know, impossible. But, you know, these nations came together and sure it was complicated, but they're saying, and it wouldn't this be the ideal, <laughs> Right. And it's like, yes, that is, you know, what it, wouldn't it be lovely if this is everyone had these conditions for thriving? And, you know, we have many folks who are barely surviving. Right. But imagine how much more, I mean, not just enjoyable life would be, but how much in some ways more <laughs> less stressful, all of it. Right. And the there are these moments where the impossible becomes possible. Right. <laughs> suddenly you're able to coordinate although you know some flaws healthcare systems nationally internationally to be in conversation with each other to develop cures to do this that type of thing because there's enough of a crisis happening and so part of the thing around reproductive justice is like what if it's not just during crisis right what if we thought about this way when we're beyond the crisis right what could we build what could we create so Right. And one of the things I think um, that really allows you to get into the depths of all of these angles is the fact that you're really not, as you say in the book, kind of taking a Black women's organization and putting it at the center, right, rather than having it be this kind of side story to to another development and really giving it the space, um, the attention to develop all of these different angles and nuances and you talk early in the book about how social movement literature has kind of been slow to, to look at black women's, uh, black social movements in general, uh, but also black women's organizations in particular. And I wondered why you th- think the field has been so slow to react. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things there. And um, I mean, one thing that I think is important about Sister Song is that it was intentionally started as a coalition across a multiracial coalition. And, and granted it was in some ways what might've seemed very sort of um, rudimentary, but it was like, okay, for black women's organizations, for Chicana Latina, that was the language that was being used at the time for indigenous, right. For Asia Pacific Islander, and uh, it was sort of thought of as like, well, there'll be equal representation. And 
part of the uniqueness of trying to bring together, right, see the commonalities across those groups, right? And so that's one thing that's important just in general in social movement literature, like coalition is very important, but it becomes um, sometimes it's seen as a sort of separate thing in and of itself rather than like, well, like Sister Song is both an individual organization, like it has an office in Atlanta, it still does, but it's also this larger coalitional entity, right? It's trying to do this both and. And I think something that's, ironic about social movement field within the U.S. is that a lot of the sort of models were built on looking at the U.S. civil rights movement, right? Which was obviously, right, it was about Black people, right, African-Americans fighting for liberation or just liberation, just basic respect, right? And so there was a really interesting thing in which you had... these models developed around whether political process or others, but without actually talking about the sort of racial dynamics, right? And part of that also has to do with that, you know, social movement research is often looking at the level of organization, institution, right? Sometimes one of the critiques of some social movement scholarship is that you lose sight of the individuals, right? (laughs) Because they're doing, you know, this work around how are these organizations, interacting? How are they interacting with institutions? How are they interacting with policymakers? And say, well, what about the people within the organizations, right? So that's part of it. And then part of it has to do with the broader issue within sociology as a field and sort of where it was, and I'd say it's it's shifting now in the past six or so years, um, in really recognizing the role of race, not as a variable, right, but as something that structures at the interactional level, at the institutional level, knowledge production, and that that has an impact on the types of questions people are asking, we're asking, right? And there's some great work by some scholars younger than I, and it's always a little weird to say, you know, that I'm a more senior scholar. But, um, you know, Glenn Bracey Sturman has a really excellent piece looking at the sort of inherent whiteness of political process theory, right, which really has been quite dominant within the social movement literature, but also based on certain assumptions about people, you know, movement actors' desires to be part of the state, for example, right? Or um, there's been some work around framing. Um, Very recently, you know, Veronica Tariquez, about six years ago, you know, using the examples of young um, undocumented activists, not all undocumented activists, but um, uh, within the U, uh, within California, looking at youth organizations all across the state and talking about intersectionality, right? And thinking about like, how can you take this idea of framing and sort of how movements are talking about their issues and apply, you know, intersectional analysis? What do you gain by thinking about these intersections, right? And so there's been, um, and she's, to be clear, she's a more senior scholar. Um, uh, and then Callie Watkins Liu did a really interesting piece out of the Sociology of Race and Ethnicity Journal that looked at all, you know, a decade of the winners of Best Book in the American Sociological Association Collective Behavior and Social Movement section and looked at 
um, sort of who was the subject of the book, um, how much were individuals centered, uh, what types of assumptions were made about movements and author identity, right? And, you know, sort of tracking how much are racial minorities sort of represented in any of these best books? What are the assumptions? And so I think it's also really about knowledge production and what spaces in fields are more or less open or perceived as more or less open. And I'll say for me, it's been exciting to see between the time that I um, started graduate school and now, I guess, 15 years later, oh my gosh, no, <laughs> which way past that, what am I talking about? Um, um, to see the shift and while the social movements area was sort of late to, uh, in my view, late to come to it, there's also been quite a bit of movement in a short amount of time. And so like the first special issue on it was called racialized social movements was in 2017. And then, um, and I, I had a piece in it and it was really exciting, but I, you know, I talk about, I wrote a blog post for something that sort of connected with the journal about how, when I was on the job market and I was doing my talks around thinking about human rights and reproductive justice that, you know, after one of the talks, someone came up to me and was like, oh, you know, this is really interesting research, but you just have to figure out a way to make it interesting to people who don't care about race or gender. And I was like, mm. huh. <laughs> the work is all about race and gender and movements. Like that's, that's a lot to do. And um, I, I th- you know, I, I'm still in contact with this person. I think they were, you know, sort of thinking about it in terms of like, okay, how do you, you know, negotiate movement, you know, like, job markets and all that but that was sort of the like okay well you have to fit your work into this structure that's pretty limited versus now and I I also you know we should credit BLM and um, you know I mean there were prior protests etc 2006 um, Latinx folks protests you know like there were different things that had happened on the ground that also it was like well why why weren't, why couldn't movement literature have predicted this? And part of it was like, well, you know, for the most part, sort of mainstream movement literature wasn't thinking about race. <laughs> you could go to ethnic studies and find it, right? Um, you could go to a few other spaces and find it, but it wasn't happening in those. And so then you get these big quote unquote surprises, whereas for anyone who's working on the ground or part of the communities, it wasn't a big, huge surprise. And so there's been a slow sort of, bringing together of some of these things and more intentional efforts between the different sections of ASA. Like when Belinda Robnett became the section chair, she actively forged a relationship between the section on racial and ethnic minorities, right? And had specific sessions. And so part of it is sort of doing that work of bringing together the different knowledge communities and saying, okay, what are our similarities? What are our differences? And also just broader changes in the field, which I think is, you know, people will look back on this and say, yeah, there were some big shifts. (laughs) Right. But I mean, what you say about kind of people who were also in contact with communities, it's less surprising. It it makes me think also about some of the discussions you have in the book and particularly in the appendix about kind of straddling these 
these communities and participant observation, how you, you know, you kind of deciding where to draw the line between scholar and activist, um, particularly, I think, in, in the contemporary context, as you know, there's this kind of rise of scholar activism. Um, can you maybe just, I mean, we've, we've already talked a lot, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but maybe just briefly kind of how you feel now that the book's out, I mean, uh, how uh, the reaction from maybe from Sister Song or, or others that you studied, uh, how you've navigated that. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah, in uh, one of the appendices, I yeah talk about how my sort of thoughts, my relationship to the movement shifted over time, and my thoughts about what made sense to include. And there's a lot of different ways to write a book, as you know. <laughs> and um, there are things that were certainly very interesting that I found in files that people raised in interviews, but they weren't part of this story and weren't necessary um, for the, to help the reader understand the sort of larger arguments I was making. I think that, oh, I think that in, you know, there's sort of mainstream, more mainstream sociology discussions around quote unquote scholar activism, but I think there's precursors to this, right? And, you know, I mean, Pat Hill Collins, when she was president of ASA, talked about the work that she'd been doing for a long time. Some people pinpoint it to Michael Burrowvoy's talk about public sociology and others still point out like, well, there's a much longer tradition, right? Actually of people and that, you know, you could go back and think about the fact that, well, there are folks who were really interested in sociology that would have, you know, research that would have an impact <laughs> and could be read or used by people outside of academia for so long. Um, whether it's you think about Jane Addams and those folks who were literally like sort of kicked out and told them, go, go be social workers or W.E.B. Du Bois. And so I think this is a, we're seeing, you know, current iteration, but it's part of a much longer trajectory and that there's other disciplines where it's already sort of part of the understanding um, of it. And I think that's part of the difference. I have a, joint degree in women's studies and, you know, something like women's studies or um, Chicano studies, African-American studies, like those came out of explicit movement efforts. And so in those spaces, people, you know, there's much more recognition that like, yes, knowledge production is political. Whereas I think, you know, in sociology and sometimes to some degree history, et cetera, right? Like there's this idea, no, that there's neutrality, but, when we're writing a book or developing, you know, whatever our coding guide is for our documents or interview protocol, we're still making choices and we're still people, right? And the question is whether or not you're going to make your choices intentionally and what that will mean. Um, I have found uh, it's always interesting to me to talk with people about the work, whether it's people in academic settings or um, people from Sister Song emailing about like, oh yeah, this part was right, this part wasn't, you know. <laughs> and, but apparently, you know, I write about that and say that people don't necessarily always agree with a researcher's take on it. But as a researcher, that element, I'm looking at the multiple interviews I have, right? The multiple documents I have, that because of the position I was able to access, right? And part of that does mean 
telling the broader story, not only one person's version of it, right? Uh, it's well, it's telling <laughs> my interpretation of it, but it's not only telling one interviewee or this other interviewees, right? I'm trying to draw mm-hmm. together the different data. And, you know, I've also, you know, I did a book club, uh, the Win Fund, which is a abortion fund in the Dakotas. Um, they do a sort of quarterly book club and they pick my book. And so I sat in on the conversation with them about it. And I love how people who are coming at it from different angles have really different types of questions. And it also reminds me that there's things that I that I know because I've been around so long at different events that others are like, oh, I didn't know that there was a conference at that time or, oh, that, that person or, oh, wait, I've seen that person interviewed on TV, right, for some of the folks who use the real names. And so that is also, I think, really important. And as a friend of mine said, you know, really good sociology should eventually be able to be like a good sort of documenting of history as well. It's not the same as a history book. <laughs> it's not fewer footnotes for sure, <laughs> but that it should be able to tell you something about the time and you should really be able to understand more and get a fuller picture. And so I've been pleased by the response and the types of questions or people saying, Hey, this was my family's story, you know, around forced sterilization or this or that. And so people really resonate with different parts of it. So I've been enjoying that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to admit, as a historian, there was lots in here for me. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I'm not trained as a historian, but um, I definitely I took some history classes in grad in grad school and definitely looked at some of the uh, the ways that historians create archives because I do, it's just sort of naturally part for many of you to like kind of create your own sub archive and sort of being influenced by those approaches. Um, but also, I am also a fan of footnotes, as as anyone who's read my book will see. Although I did end notes, that was the uh, the the one way to <laughs> my nod to sociology. But I'm glad that there was something in there. Yeah, for you. I, I think this is really a book that that will appeal to sociologists, but also historians, women's gender studies, um, even political science. I, I Wait, feel yes, there's, political there's science. some kind of political science element in here yeah, too. It's, yeah. It really has a, it is. an interdisciplinary kind of methodology and, and conceptually as well. Yeah, reflects um, my training and also what I think was necessary to tell this story because it does right. have that complexity. Um, it was across disciplines. <laughs> right. So very briefly before yeah. we go, I just wanted to ask you what you're working on now. Yeah, so what I've been working on, um, well, Collected some data around different women's marches, so looking at women in protest and actually say people in protest, not only women, but um, and doing interviews at different time points with folks about the sort of impact of those marches on their trajectory, or in some cases, lack thereof impact. But the other thing, uh, the most recent thing, is an edited volume on Black feminist sociology that I. Uh, worked on with Whitney Pirtle at UC Merced. And we have a website for that, blackfeministsociology.com. And we're going to be building that out in um, profiling some of the different contributors to the edited volume, uh, but also going to have some open calls for folks to submit different types of blog pieces to really broaden 
sort of people's engagement around like what does black feminist sociology look like in a range of places? What are its possibilities for shifting praxis regarding how we do research and how we publish? Um, so th- those are the main things. Yeah. And then, you know, we teaching a new class on intersectionality at the grad level and an undergrad movements class, things like that. <laughs> All right, all of uh, all of uh, the different elements. All the things, yeah. <laughs> all the things, <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, well, I think we'll end it there. Thanks again so much, uh, Zeki. It was so interesting to talk to you. Uh, the book is excellent. Thank and you. I wish you all the best with your next project. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you for the audience for listening. And of course, always feel free to visit my website, zekialuna.com, or email me. Great. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.